0: Okie dokie, a podcast for those addicted to the study of Scripture. Welcome, fellow addicts. This is your safe place to OD. Samuel!
1: Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today, we're continuing our journey through the gospel narrative. This is Gospels Part 27. In the previous episode, we saw where Jesus started off sort of like a legal defense of why he is not letting his own testimony be the only thing um, to show his credibility as the Messiah and the Son of God, and he lays out four different witnesses that attest to who he is and who the scriptures have borne witness to. Um uh, First witness was John the Baptist. Second witness was his his works that essentially they come from God. Uh, the third witness was God Himself, and the fourth witness was the Torah. Um, and then Jesus had this criticism of the people, kind of getting back at their history as a nation and all the things that has happened, you know, since God delivered them out of Egypt, married them. Uh, started all of these covenants with them to this day. And even at Jesus' baptism, um, all of those uh, witnesses being present and how even though that they're hearing and they're seeing and that they've experienced God's presence, presence, that does not mean that they have experienced them in a personal, intimate way.
0: Yeah. So that was all, That man, that was a long sort of conversation or rant or whatever you want to call it. And now, at least in the order we're going through, we're going to really switch gears. This is so very different, and this is probably more the part of the gospel, the gospel narratives that people really want to start talking about. We're, we're finally going to really get into Jesus's ministry. And so we're going to be looking at multiple gospels at the same time, and uh, we're going to be kind of skipping around a little bit, possibly, you know, taking things out of their written order, all of that stuff, so gotta pay attention to keep up.
1: Yeah, and just don't forget, you have a PDF on your show notes, on your podcasting app. It's a really good tool to help you follow along. Yeah, especially when we do this
0: stuff. Yeah. Alright, you ready? Let's do it. Let's do it. So, the first little section we're gonna look at is in the book of Luke, chapter 3, and it's verses 19 and 20. It says this, But Herod the Tetrarch who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Okay, so number one, when it says, who had been reproved by him, him is John the Baptist also, just so you know. But what do we got going on here? So, number one... You hear that name, Herod. And, okay, for sure, we've already looked at a bunch of the story where we had Herod the Great. He was the one that killed all the babies in Bethlehem and that kind of thing. Uh, He died back in 4 BC. We talked a lot about him. That's not who we're talking about here. If you'll remember, pretty sure we covered this also, his territory got divided up on his death to be ruled by his three sons. There was Antipas, Archelaus and Philip now Archelaus didn't last very long, but Philip and Antipas they actually had a border that they shared between them, and uh, they were the ones that were ruling, and they kept that name, so you had Herod the Great and then you had Herod antipas Herod Archelaus Herod Philip sounds a little weird, but whatever that's that's what they did now Here's the important part first of all, Herod the Tetrarch is Herod. Antipas. So, point number one, super important. But remember, he had a brother named Philip. Well, Philip had a wife. Her name was Herodias. Already this is sounding a little bit weird, right? (laughs) Because he's getting busted by John because, when I say he, Antipas is getting busted by John because he took Herodias for his wife. It was his brother's wife, and he took her. And she became his wife. <laughs> so, gotcha. John the Baptist is giving him something about it, right? So, John the Baptist, he, he's, he's reproving Antipas for that one specific thing, the taking the brother's wife. But, Luke says, he's also reproving him for every other evil thing that he had done. Now, the weird thing is, Herod the Great was super bad. Archelaus easily as bad, maybe worse, we're, we're not sure. But at least comparatively, Antipas wasn't near as bad as those guys. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't bad, because he was. But he wasn't near as bad as those guys. But John's getting on him for this. So Antipas, in response to John's reproof, he adds yet one more evil thing to his long list of evil things. He throws John in prison for basically nothing except telling the truth and calling him to a higher standard. Now, we do have uh, some other writings outside the Bible because there's just not enough info in the Bible. And they talk a lot about John's uh, growing crowds. And we know that even in, in, we read one part where some of those crowds were leaving John and going to Jesus for baptism, et cetera, right? We talked about that. But John's growing crowds, Antipas feared John he thought there could be some sort of uprising, there could be some sort of rebellion, there could be some sort of insurrection, and this is really, really bad for a leader back in this time. If you can't keep your place in control, well, you got way more trouble than the people who are living in your place. You got the Roman Empire who are going to come in and smash you. So mm-hmm. he, was, he didn't like that. So he, he already didn't like John, and now John reproves him, and so he likes him even less, throws him in jail. And I'd just like to take a moment. Do you remember, kind of toward the end of the last episode, we talked about Jesus while he was talking. He happened to make mention of John. He was his first witness. And remember, he referred to him in the past tense. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, again, we're trying to go through in some sort of time sequence, and we don't know that it's all exactly perfect or whatever, but you can see how these do kind of sort of line up now. We don't know... That Jesus had been told at that point, but he obviously knew, and now we're being told, and so now everybody knows John's been arrested. This isn't going to turn out well for John. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, moving on to the next bit. This is going to be a little bit confusing. So in Luke, we're going to jump up to chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, but we're also going to take a look at Mark, chapter 1, verse 14, and Matthew, chapter 4, verse 12. And I'm going to read, I think I'm going to go ahead and read them all, so you kind of get the full flavor here. Matthew 4, 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Now, the he in that case is Jesus. So, there's one, one account. Mark 1, 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Well, those are I mean, those are really similar, Right? Luke four, fourteen and fifteen says this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And that kind of reminds us of that previous conversation. Jesus mm-hmm. said he didn't receive glory, didn't accept yeah, glory. I know. But that it, again it, it doesn't negate the fact that it happens it's just he gets it from somewhere else so okay let's talk about this we've already covered uh some scriptures regarding Jesus's return to Nazareth right what was the big what was the big problem there Samuel uh they they took offense at him right uh, a prophet is not accepted in his own country that sort of a story right mm-hmm. and so they didn't accept him uh, they, uh, it talked, we had that big conversation about he could do no, uh, mighty works or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of that, that we've already talked about that. This is all very much related to that. This, you know, you can kind of imagine it as that time that immediately follows all of that. And so Jesus is going to the villages around Nazareth and he's ultimately going to end up in Capernaum. So, you know, it's kind of important. We get there. And now this text adds, you know, that all-important new piece of information that John the Baptist had been arrested, and this represents uh, another pivotal moment. Uh, Jesus, we've seen him do a lot of things, and and we've already seen him trying to lay low, trying to do this, trying to do that. But all along, I don't know. Once you've read the story and you go back, you can you kind of see in the stories there's this sense in which Jesus is, he's hesitant or he's holding back or, you know, something of that nature. Well, no more. Jesus appears from this point forward to take a more prominent role because John has left the scene. John's arrest uh, also kind of puts an exclamation point on this whole idea of Jesus and his tendency where, you know, he's trying to keep a low profile. He doesn't want anybody to, to know much about him. He keeps, you know, trying to get people to hush. And now you see why. Look what happened to John. Yeah, it adds a dynamic nature to
1: Jesus's ministry and the things that he needed to do, had to do, in order to yeah. make his plan go through until the end, um, I don't know, it just, a lot of people probably think that since he was God, he came from God, that, I mean, and it's true that nothing can thwart God, but right. I don't know, it just, it shows the seriousness of timing for Jesus, and, you know, it seems to indicate that there could have been an actual possibility that if he didn't take care like this, that he could have ended up in a similar situation that John the Baptist could have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and because we already have the way it worked out in history, we would look back to it and we'd think, yeah, he could have been arrested or killed, you know, too soon, whatever that means, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 but But whether or not that would really happen, would God allow it to happen, whatever, the point is— Putting yourself in the story, seeing Jesus living in this time and in this culture and, and the, the troubles that he faced and seeing him trying to maneuver through, it's it's a good image to have in your head so that you have a more complete view of what it was like for Jesus to come and do what he did mm-hmm. for us. So now the thing that's kind of weird here, um, you know, we've already, we've gone through the story, talked about time in Nazareth, et cetera, um, Ma- Matthew and Mark, they don't really address it at all. They're just like, yeah, you know, after he's arrested, he goes to Galilee. But Luke adds this kind of interesting little extra bit where he says that Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit. Well, what exactly does he mean by that? And he also says that word was spreading about him. And what I'm going to suggest is you know, remembering exactly what did happen in Nazareth. He did have the Spirit with him, and yet a lot of those mighty works weren't being done, so we weren't experiencing the power of the Spirit because of unbelief. And so here, Luke talks about it and very easily could be applied to all of the villages around Nazareth where he says, Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit. And so it suggests that he really did find more belief after leaving Nazareth. And he really did do more mighty works. So I think that helps us kind of complete the picture a little bit. And then Luke also adds that Jesus was teaching in the synagogues and that the people were, let's just say, loving it. Now this is important. Uh, it's an often, I think, an often overlooked image of Jesus's life and ministry. He didn't do all of his teaching, walking along the seashore or out in the field or up on a mountain or wherever. He did do those things, but we need to also see him in the synagogues. And we need to see him in the synagogues as a normal and common part of his ministry as much or possibly more than teaching out just in nature, if we could say it like that. And so, again, to complete your image, what does it look like, Jesus walking around doing the stuff? You've got to include that. uh, And, you know, it's part of the reason I think that Luke includes it. Luke seems to do an amazing job all through his gospel at trying to anchor Jesus and his life in Judaism, which is kind of funny because Luke's Gentile and writing long after the fact. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up um,
1: because the synagogue in Jewish culture is this very communal place where all the people in a specific area come together to worship, to participate in the festivals, to, you know, repent, mourn all those different aspects of your of your faith life and journey. Yeah. Um, and a quick reference another Bema discipleship uh, episode plug. Marty has a episode completely dedicated to describing how the synagogue was developed after the people returned from exile back to Jerusalem and the importance mm-hmm. of that within uh, the first century culture that Jesus would have been living in, so definitely check that out if you want even more contextualization on what the synagogue is and how important it is that Jesus was teaching in there,
0: yeah, yeah, and that you remind you remind me of one of those things that I think people sometimes struggle with a little bit. I think they get this idea that the synagogue is something that came into being after and because the temple was destroyed. But right here, we see that that's not so. The synagogues mm-hmm. are around. The temple is still around. This had become a part of their culture. So yeah, uh, it's good. good reference, Samuel. That's going to help people. All right, so now we're going to move on. And in in this part, Matthew, we're going to continue in Matthew, but he's added something that's uniquely his – so we're going to try to explain it a little bit. We're in Matthew chapter 4 verse 13. It says this. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Okay. So, what is Matthew talking about? Because that just feels way out of left field, kind of weird. Mm -hmm. So let's let's walk through this a little bit. So Jesus, I guess this is kind of important. Jesus relocates to Capernaum. It says he lived in Capernaum. He grew up all that time, 30 plus years in Nazareth, and now he's living in Capernaum, uh, which, I don't know, they suggest that the uh, translation of that name is Village of Comfort, I don't know, could be good, important, I don't know. But you got to think, I guess when they kicked him out of Nazareth, it took, right? Yeah. I mean, it really worked because he left, he's gone. Now, Capernaum, uh, if you're thinking about the Sea of Galilee, like looking on a map, you would see it up around the northwest corner of the sea. Uh, For what it's worth, the scholars, I think, there's reasonable agreement. There's probably less than two thousand people there, so kinda big, but not very big. It was also this this is actually very surprising to me. It was very near one of the Roman roads. Forgive my pronunciation. It's something like Via Maris or something like that. But it was near a Roman road, so there was a lot of really good traffic on that road. That would have made Capernaum you know, in a good spot, at least for business, etc. And this particular place had excellent fishing, and it was due to some warm springs very near the area. I think it was like the, see if I can remember this, uh, seven springs of Tabgada or Tab, I don't remember how, what it was. But anyway, there's some springs, they're warm springs. They're feeding into the sea nearby. And so it made the fishing great fish like warm water, at least certain, certain types. And then one more interesting fact that I, I don't know, I feel like people wouldn't normally know, but it's kind of cool. It's very likely that Matthew, the tax collector lived and worked right there. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if you were watching one of those, uh, like a TV series, like the chosen shameless plug, cause it was awesome. Um, <laughs> they actually show that. And you know what? Kudos to them. That was great. Yeah, yeah, it was really good. So anyway, we got that. And now, uh, but still, I haven't gotten into the part where why is Matthew talking about all this weird stuff with Zebulun and Naphtali? So you have some group of people, they read this, and they hear that he left Nazareth and he was living in Capernaum, and that it, they read it as if Capernaum is in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so they argue about, well, where's the exact location of Capernaum? You know, is it really on the border between these two? All that kind of stuff. And I'm not sure. I mean, I get it. I I see it in the English, but I'm just not convinced that that's exactly what Matthew was saying. Capernaum, okay, at least to be fair to to that earlier argument, well, it's close to both territories— you could imagine how somebody would say that it was maybe, you know, associated with both or whatever. But it's much more likely that, that what Matthew's actually trying to get across here is the connection between Nazareth and Capernaum. Jesus leaves Nazareth and comes to Capernaum. Now, one thing that's really easy to do is to locate uh, let's see if I can get the. I got to make sure I get this right. Nazareth is the one that was actually within the territory of Zebulun, and Capernaum was within Naphtali. And so Matthew isn't so much saying that Capernaum rides between the two, but more like in the relationship of those two places, Nazareth is one and Capernaum is the other, and so that's how Matthew's drawing in this prophecy of Isaiah. So that's kind of important. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's probably important, and this is, again, along the ideas of trying to, you to, trying to get you to get a clear picture of what's happening. So historically, uh, let's try and do it a quick summary. You know that uh, Israel was in their land. Uh, they get uh, attacked, overrun at times by different places. Ultimately, they go into exile. So the first big, big trouble was with Assyria. Then later, they're actually taken from their home by Babylon, and then they go back, and that's something that happens through Persia, okay? Mm -hmm. So having that as a background, first of all, this original prophecy, the one that, you know, when Isaiah himself is speaking right here, this is speaking of the time of Assyria. So this is before they really go into exile in Babylon, but it's when they're being attacked by, you know, someone on the outside, and the northern kingdom is pretty much going to just get wiped out. So, this great light that was spoken of, if we're, if we're trying to figure out what was it talking about in the original, well, this was a child that was to be born, and, you know, we don't know for sure, but there's a, a good number who associate this with Hezekiah, and we've seen this before, where Jesus and the virgin birth got associated with Hezekiah and all of that. So, this is a continuation of that. Now, if you continue reading back in Isaiah, for example, and you know what, Samuel, I'm actually going to have you read a little bit of it. Um, In Isaiah chapter 9, let's go to verse 6. Read us that.
1: For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace.
0: Wow, that what all that for Hezekiah? <laughs> well, right, right, and and so they were looking for how does this get worked out in our time? Who you know who's talking about what? But look at some of that. I mean, they're talking about this child and saying that he will actually be called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. So anyway. Part of the reason that this uh, is important is because over time in Judaism, before Jesus was on the scene, that particular prophecy, the whole thing, not just this little bit, had come to be associated with Messiah. And so just like Matthew has done before, he's taking advantage of that. He's pulling it forward and saying, yeah, you had an understanding of what it was in your day and time. Whether they were right or wrong doesn't really matter. Matthew's pulling it forward and saying, and now that we have all thought that this could be applied to Messiah, I'm showing you how it really does apply. And so he's using the Zebulun-Naphtali thing to join them together. Now, uh, another interesting thing, and this kind of relates to, well, wait a second, we had you know, the Assyrians and then Babylon takes people away and then they come back, you know, when Persia takes over Babylon and, you know, all that thing. So this Galilee, notice it says, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What's that all about? Well, because the northern kingdom had been wiped out, Assyria had wiped out actually most of even the southern kingdom, uh, save Jerusalem. There were a lot of Gentiles in and around the Galilee, a, a substantial Gentile population. Now, it's mostly, you know, to the north, and like it grows the further north you go, that kind of thing. But this dates back all the way to like in and around the exile, after the exile period, all of that. And so, even that little bit of the prophecy that he's pulling forward from Isaiah has this weird little, little statement about Galilee of the Gentiles that actually fits with the time and the place. That, mm. I just think that's just, it's amazing. It's awesome. Yeah. And then the final little bit in Matthew's telling, of course, Jesus is now the great light. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And he is also the light that has dawned. Uh, dwelling in the region's shadow of death, and on them the light has dawned. So Matthew, he's doing that same thing that we've talked about a number of times in previous podcasts. He's really pulling this thing forward and showing how it applies to the Messiah.
1: That has some John 1 nuances to it about oh yeah the, the true light coming into the world. Bring it. I think John 1, 9, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Ah. Sounds
0: almost exactly like the Isaiah prophecy. It does, doesn't it? Uh-huh. See? You'll never stop finding cool things in your Bible. If you don't believe me, it, lets, it stands as a challenge <laughs> yeah. from this day forth. Just saying. Yeah, that's good. You said some. Do you have more? No. Just checking. Yeah, that's it. Okay. That's awesome. So all right, so he, he Matthew lays that on us, tries to help us see the connection there, and then we move on and we're gonna join in now both Matthew and Mark. So uh Matthew four seventeen says From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Sounds a little bit familiar, doesn't it, Samuel? It does. Yeah. And this, uh, we're going to relate it to Mark, uh, chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. I'm just going to start partway through verse 14, where it says, Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, We've already been beating you guys up, the people listening to the podcast, We've been beating you up about the importance of the kingdom, trying to get this into you. And now you see Jesus when he, you know, John is done and Jesus is sort of taken over. What's the first thing out of his mouth? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is the gospel. Now, Matthew says preach. Mark says proclaim. Um, the, the word that underlies though, it's like a royal announcement or a proclamation, which is kind of interesting because we're talking about a kingdom, which of Mm -hmm. course means you have to have a king, a king, right? Uh, we're going to, we've already said it. The gospel is the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. When you hear those two phrases, they are the same. It's just a, each person's different way of uh, of stating it, but but there's not like there's two different things. And Jesus is he's just picking up where John left off. And the basic message we're going to say it again: repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, what are we saying? We're saying quit sinning, which in Jesus's time and in Jesus's place means return to Torah. Now, bonus question, Samuel. What does it mean in our time and in our place? Ha ha! Same thing! <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is this a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, there's no difference. The message is quit sinning. It was, it was the message for Jews in Israel in his time, and it is the same for us. Now, our relationship to the law is a little bit different. They lived under covenant, and we do not. But the message is the same, quit sinning, return to Torah. There's a lot of Torah that can benefit us, and I'm, we're going to talk, keep talking about that. So quit sinning was part one of the message. Part two was believe the good news. And what is that good news? That the kingdom is close. The very thing that has been talked about all through the scriptures, and in this case, we're talking about the Old Testament, it, the, the ultimate end of all of that was the kingdom. That was their expectation, and that's what they're supposed to do. Quit sinning, believe in that good news. Now, simple question, Samuel, because we just said it. What is the only reasonable response to this good news?
1: I think the Hebrew idiom is shuvah
0: or repentance. Yeah. Repentance. And why? Why would that be so? So that you may be easily identified as a citizen of that kingdom. That's going to be a really important part of the story. How are you identified? How can you be known? So, What you have here is the keepers of the covenant. Okay, so again, in this case, we're talking about Jews in Israel in the first century. Those who keep the Torah, keep the covenant, do their part. Well, they enjoy the blessings of that covenant. And what we need to do is try to get this picture in our head. So let's go back, Samuel. We want to think of the Exodus, First of all, you have all these people in Egypt. So what is the first thing that God does?
1: He hears their cries of being oppressed and he steps in
0: and rescues them. Yes. Yes, and and now they did cry out, but what did they do to earn that salvation? Uh, nothing. <laughs> nothing. Yeah, they they were they were benefiting from the merit of who? Of Moses. Abraham. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? That I mean, you're right, Moses, but, but ultimately that mm-hmm. they were benefiting of the merit that Abraham had earned with God. So God saves Israel from the Egyptians. Israel did nothing. But then what happens next? God brings them through what?
1: Uh, he... Parts the, the waters of the Red Sea.
0: Exactly. He brings them through the waters. Now, just think about the two things that we've just said. They got saved, and then they came through the water, which sounds like what, Samuel? Immersion. Yeah, baptism. So, he saves them, they get baptized. Now, what did Israel do to save themselves at the sea? <laughs> well, I mean, they just, they walked. <laughs> yeah. They, I mean, and actually, they didn't even do that. They did nothing because that's what God said to do. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it was kind of like God was like, all right, you ready? Hide and watch. <laughs> and then he, you know, did. it's an amazing story. They did nothing. So only after they've been saved for doing nothing and been baptized nothing, then, then God desires to dwell among them, and so he brings them to Sinai, and he gives them his loving instructions to make it possible so that they can dwell together. We, too, can follow his loving instructions after being saved and baptized, So that we can dwell together. We can have that intimate relationship, that nearness, if you will. And so we've we've got to see that picture. All of this together, the same way that it happened in the Exodus story in the nation of Israel, that is the picture for all humans in the grand or the greater work of salvation. That's how we fit in. So, this idea of repentance. We can't ignore that. It's for us too. The works that we do, they don't save us. It came after, right? Baptism, no, that's after. We do it because they're loving instructions and we want to be in relationship with a loving father.
1: Yeah, I feel like another way of saying everything that you just laid out is repentance is creating a space within our own lives for God to fill it and we see that all the way back after the Exodus when God instructs them on how to build the tabernacle he says like you create this space for me and I'll fill it and then it happened later with the temple and now you know in the messianic age it's like you as a born again human are to be a symbol of a temple where God will fill through your life.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that same picture goes all the way back to Eden. Mm -hmm. All of creation, God created a space and filled it with humans and then he wanted to dwell with them. But then sin comes, God is like, "Uh, you know what, I'm out of here. I can't live in the midst of all this stuff. And and so then later, it's like, yeah, now I created a space for you. Now you create a space for me Mm -hmm. and that is the tabernacle, the temple. Yeah, such a great image. I love it. All right, so all of that because Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. (laughs) But it's important because we get this gospel message in our brains from modern whatever, and it's messed up. Mm -hmm. And we need to see this.
1: And I was gonna, I meant to say right before you move on, the way that we've lined this up chronologically with the gospel narrative, it's so cool to see how just before this verse about us learning that John had been arrested and we know previously that John's message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And how you had said that like Jesus's role is now more emphasized than it was when John was in the picture. And I just think it's really cool how it's almost like Jesus is taking the baton from John and repeating the
0: same thing that
1: was initiated by him.
0: Yeah, and we're going to see he shares the baton with the apostles. He sends them out with the exact same message. Mm-hmm. It's It cannot be, we just, we underestimate it. It's important. It's important. All right. So th- this next bit's kind of interesting. Uh, number one, uh, let's take a look at, we're going to look at Matthew four eighteen and Mark one sixteen, And let's look at those together first because it's really short compared to what we're going to look at in Luke. So Matthew 4.18, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Mark's, very similar, says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So this first little bit, we can dispense with this pretty quickly. Um, Matthew and Mark, they're they're just giving us the basic details. Jesus is walking along. He's uh, by the Sea of Galilee, sees a couple of fishermen. We know they're Peter and Andrew and that they're brothers. They're casting a net. It's probably a small one in shallow water, whatever. That's pretty much it. It's all we get. Now, I am going to take Luke and I'm going to pull it just a little bit out of order. People do it different ways. I'm just choosing this one because it makes sense to me. If you disagree, good for you. We're going to look at Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And after this, we're going to come back to Luke 4. So anyway, bear with me. Let's read what he says here. Luke 5.1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in, And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. I'm going to cut it right there. So, wow, so much. It's, I mean, it kind of feels like a long story, at least the way we normally go through the text. So let's start walking our way through this. Number one, Lake of Gennesaret. <laughs> the heck is that? Yeah. Well, sorry to say, that's the Sea of Galilee. I don't, know, I don't know why we have to have two names, but uh, Gennesaret, uh, what was it, Gennesar, Gennes, something. There's a little town around there. Uh, it's kind of close to Capernaum, and so uh, that may be uh, the name that they use just because it makes more sense for their town. I don't know. But anyway, it's the Sea of Galilee, so we got that out of the way. Now, Luke here, though, compared to Mar- uh, Matthew and Mark, he's offering a very different view. We got Jesus at the sea. Uh, and again, we're taking Luke a little bit out of order, but don't worry about it. Um, we're not trying to get time order perfection. Uh, there's a crowd that's pressing in around Jesus. And they want to hear his message. They believe it to be a message from God. Apparently, they believe it a little easier than you know some of the Jewish leaders did. But Jesus definitely did Okay, I'm going to reiterate a point. He definitely did a lot of teaching in the synagogues, but this is one of those really unique and cool things about Jesus. He also did a lot of teaching just out in nature, kind of, you know, any old where. Now, it's not to say that no one ever did it ever in Judaism or in his time, but this, this was very uniquely Jesus. He did a lot of teaching like this. So that's another thing to add to your mental image. He's a little outside the box when he's teaching outside. So anyway, Jesus sees a couple of boats, uh, you know, eventually. And, you know, he tells us that one of those is Simon's. And now Luke, it's kind of funny, he just kind of leaves Andrew out. (laughs) Uh, The other two Gospels told us that, you know, he was there or, or whatever. So he sees one of the boats, it's Simon's. The other one belongs to James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, uh, you know, there's a, people have tried to figure out, well, why is is he leaving Andrew out? Well, one of the popular ideas is that Luke, he, he he was trying to focus on the more influential disciples. So Peter, James, and John. And I mean, you know, there's something reasonable about that. But it's still, I mean, it just comes off kind of weird that he keeps leaving Andrew out. But anyway, they're all fishing partners. So, so Simon and Andrew and their boat, James and John and I guess Zebedee, their boat, they're all fishing partners. And they've they're all done fishing for the day, and they're trying to wash out their nets. So so they're they're out of their boats. They're not even in their boats anymore. And uh I guess we should say We've already met some of these guys in John's gospel. Do you remember which ones, Samuel? I don't. Okay, it's Simon and Andrew. Okay. All right. We also had like Philip and Nathaniel, and whatever, mm-hmm. but we haven't really seen James and John. Well, we speculated about John. But anyway, so we know that at least some of these guys and Jesus have spent time together. Uh, but this story... And it kind of depends on how you read it, but you you could read this story and think that this was kind of like the first time they'd ever met. And in fact, that's what a lot of people do. That's We've been talking about the fact that, you know, you get this image of Jesus showing up and calling them and it's almost like they can't resist and they just follow him or whatever. Well, Simon and Andrew, they'd already been around him. They, they, they knew uh They they, they had some history. They'd seen some some miracles, all kinds of stuff. They were just back doing their job. And so Jesus, now remember, they're out of the boat. They're washing their nets, all that. Jesus climbs into one of the boats. It's Simon's. And he asks Simon to put out away from the shore, but not too far, just a little bit. Simon's thinking and, and his response, I mean it has to be a little bit influenced by the fact that he already knew this guy, right? He'd, he'd already spent some time with him. It's it's unlikely that he was a complete stranger, unless maybe, you know, he did sort of have that Pied Piper feel, right? He couldn't resist. But I think, you know, w- Peter's responding and, and not really upset by this and, and going along with what Jesus says because they have a little bit of history. But then... Jesus sits down in the boat to teach the crowd, and I think it's important that we point this out again. We've already seen this very common behavior, and it sounds weird to us because of the way we do church in America, but you stand up to read the scripture, and you sit down to teach, and so even out here when he's in a boat, Jesus sits down to teach. It's like the cue for the audience. Pay attention because he's about to say the important stuff. So again, uh, Luke gives us zero of what he taught. We got no content whatsoever. Now, if you wanted, you might take a peek over at Matthew 13. It's another example, Jesus teaching from a boat. In that case, uh, a lot of parables involved, that kind of thing. So, So maybe that's what's going on here, but we really have no indication. All we know is he was teaching. Then when he finishes, now he tells Simon to go into deep water and throw out his nets for a catch. Now, on the face of it, we wouldn't think there was anything weird about that, except that in the story, we'd been told they'd been fishing all night and caught nothing. So, probably to the reader, people like us, and way more so to Simon, this makes no sense. They'd fished all night. It was now day. And in fact, here's another thing. Daytime, it's a bad time for fishing. And Jesus is telling him to go, go do this. So Simon complains. Understandable, right? Jesus, we, we already been fishing all night. But then he relents. But if you say so. <laughs> he does what Jesus commands. Now, I got to ask you, Samuel, think about that. First, he complains And then he relents and does what he's been asked to do. Can you think of any New Testament story like that? Um,
1: Sounds kind of like one of the two brothers in the
0: prodigal son story. Yeah, I, I know you meant parable of the two sons, but it's exactly the same. Complain first and then do what you were asked. That's the older son. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. Well, boy, when we get to that parable, we might change a little bit of how you guys think about that one. But that is, that's not an entirely bad thing. He ends up being the one doing the will of his father. That's an important piece. So anyway, Simon complains, he relents. And then, here's a question, Samuel, before we read on. Do you think Jesus stayed in the boat? Um... Well, we haven't gotten to the
1: walking on the water miracle yet. So, <laughs> no,
0: no, no, uh, no, right? I mean, we're going to see the answer, but it's, it is kind of a weird thing. He just commanded Peter to go out into deep water. And to, well, did he stay in the boat or not? Well, we'll see. So then they go out there, they cast the nets, and they get this overflowing catch of fish. It's too much, even for two boats, two of them. Now, this miracle. Again, it's a demonstration of the kingdom. So it, it, it's, uh, it's tapping into that idea of abundant provision, uh, command over nature, right? Nature will, will submit to the king, it, just like people do. It's an amazing picture. And therefore, this miracle identifies the kingdom's king, the one who has the dominion over creation itself, the Messiah. And then, (laughs) now this should take us back. Remember, we had the conversation. Well, is it faith that causes miracles or do miracles cause faith? And in this case, I mean, what are you supposed to think? Right? But what was the real point? We discussed back then, the real point isn't to try to figure out exactly how it works. The real point is to simply have faith, be faithful. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, so so they've got all these fish, got all this stuff going on, and now all who were present with Simon were astonished, overwhelmingly astonished by this. Okay, and it additionally tells us that James and John were astonished by this whole thing. So now, wait a second. Who was he and all who were with him? I mean, Luke had already tried to leave Andrew out, we think that he's there, but he's not mentioned. We were trying to figure out, you know, was Jesus in the boat or not? We're not 100% certain about that yet. But this makes it sound like there were even more on Simon's boat. Forget the fact that, that Luke left out Andrew, he may have left out a couple other people. I mean, the, the crowd wasn't with him, right? They were back on the shore. Teaching was over. They may have left, they're out in the deep. So who was in the boat with him? Well, I got to think, Samuel, maybe these boats were bigger than we think. Maybe the fishing crews were bigger than we think. Well, there was kind of a cool discovery. At the Sea of Galilee, one time the water level like goes way down. I don't know what the, the circumstances were or whatever. Probably was dry, right? Mm-hmm. The water levels goes down and they find a first century fishing boat in the mud in the Sea of Galilee. Dang. How cool is that? Mm-hmm. Now, this boat, I, I, I'm surprised by it. You tell me what you think. This boat was 27 feet long and seven and a half feet wide.
1: That's pretty long, I mean, I've been in a fifteen or a sixteen foot canoe, and it feels big, so to think about almost doubling that is that's a big boat,
0: yeah, even if you had five guys in the boat, you'd have five feet in between you, mhm, about you know what i'm saying that's 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 a big boat, and by the way, imagine two of those filled with fish that's a lot of fish, mhm. <laughs> Right? And so, let's keep going with this. The nets must have been big too. Right? Now, I don't know what you've seen, you know, TV, movies, that kind of stuff. These were most probably something called trammel nets. Now, I'm not going to act like I know a lot about them, but I know this. They could actually be joined together, and they were usually hundreds of feet in length they had like multiple multiple parts to them like one of them had really big netting so the fish got through easily and then inside it was you know much tighter netting so it would kind of trap the fish in or whatever interesting sort of story but the point is these nets had to be humongous too so anyway kind of cool so simon he sees all of this happening we got these big boats we've got People on him, maybe more than two per boat now. Jesus may or may not be there. He sees all of this stuff, and he recognizes or acknowledges, whatever word you want to put in there, he gets it. I am in the presence of the Messiah. And then he asks Jesus to depart. Now was Jesus in the boat? I think so. (laughs) Yeah. So he's there. He he asks him to depart because he knows that he is not worthy to be in the presence of God's Messiah. Because he knows that he is a sinful man. And so, we've already heard stories that the disciples, they've already seen Jesus performing miracles. We've already heard it stated that these disciples believed. Remember that? So they've seen miracles, they've said they believed, but now all of a sudden, Simon, I mean, it kind of reads like he's never seen anything like this before, or you might think it's the first time, all of that. So how could it be? How could it be that Simon does have experience with him, prior experience, and yet he's responding in this way? Well, on one hand, it could be that, in everyone's attempts to try to sequence the events of the gospels, that things just get kind of jumbled and we're seeing it wrong. okay it's possible, but it could also be that this miracle had extra significance in all of the other things that we've seen Jesus do or been told about and, and Simon had the opportunity to see was Simon an expert in any of those things was Simon? The guy who knew everything about how it worked inside and out, he knew where the fish were and when they would be there and how to use the nets and how to use the boat and why the warm water helped and blah, 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 on and on and on and on. Simon knew everything about this. It was his life. And Jesus does a miracle right there in that space that Simon can't comprehend. And so this miracle has extra significance for him. Yeah, it's cool to see, you know, five big stone jars turned into wine, (laughs) water to wine. But the very thing that you do for a living, the thing you know better than anything else, it's kind of a big deal. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. The whole story I think is, it's just amazing. It's awesome to try to put yourself in it in the middle of the TV show, watching it happen, right? And just a little side note, uh, for whatever reason, I think there's a, a number of people who try to make this event that we're reading here in Luke as the same event that's happening in John chapter 21. And I know in the Gospels, they put some things out of sequence and that kind of stuff, but I think these are just two completely separate events. There's a lot mm-hmm. of reasons for that. We can talk about that another time.
1: Yeah. So many great things that you said. Um, and just a. Reiterate some things you said, maybe add some things that can help this story. Um, I think that there's a difference between when you witness a miracle, it's, I don't want to say from afar, but the way that Simon and Andrew and all those other guys, if they were present at something like the water turned into wine. That's a very different type of emotional and psychological experience than like what you said, whenever it directly affects your occupation, your family's provision, well-being. And it's not like I have personal experience on experiencing miracles, but it just, it seems like the magnitude of how that would affect you drastically would be increased, uh, when when it hits you on a personal level like that. Uh, and then just to add on why it would be even more of a big deal to, to Simon Peter is that um, I'm not saying that Jesus didn't have experience with fishing, but we know based on what his father did that he probably would have been more accustomed to doing things carpentry-wise uh, than fishing for a career yeah wooden stone yeah 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 and for i mean and i'm sure if we're going with the assumption that simon knew about jesus at this moment that he would have recognized him as a rabbi as a teacher of the law of moses and for this guy that is not accustomed to the trade of fishing it probably seems kind of crazy it's like why is this guy who's you know, teaching in the synagogues, telling me how to do my job. And especially con- on the context level, it's, it's so important that the text tells you that they had been fishing all night because those trammel nets, uh, the reason that they did fishing with trammel nets at night is because those nets had three separate layers. And at night when they, when they dropped them into the water, uh, it's it's harder for the fish to see that you've put the net down there than in the daytime because right. they, they swim into the nets and like uh, the screen or the mesh is like uh, wide enough on the first layer that they can pass through it but then they get into the deeper inner layers and the mesh is more tightly wound and that's what gets them tangled up and you know stopped in their tracks to where they can pull them up and retrieve them so yeah. It it would seem even more outlandish for this rabbi to say, yeah, it's daytime, like cast it out again, see what happens. And Simon would be like, wait, do you not even know how trammel nets work? Like, that's why right? we just spent all night doing it. So, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to throw those contextual things because when I heard it for the first time, I was like, wow, that's a really cool element to the story that I have never heard before that I think just makes it that much cooler. It would
0: be as if Jesus showed up and our podcast was suddenly great. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. We like it the way it is. <laughs> That's good. That is rich. That's right. I know that one. So, uh anything more on this bit, Sam? No, I nope. Well then, I think we got to go. Yeah. Got a
1: R-U-N-N-O-F-T.
0: That's right. (laughs) That's right. Uh, So that's it. I think we cut it right here. See you next time. Okie dokie.
1: Thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Most podcast. Please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you're notified when our episodes release on Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time so that you never miss an episode. We also would really appreciate it if you left us a review on your podcasting app telling us how this content has positively affected your life. Our podcast is now available on all podcasting platforms, so please make sure you check us out on your electronic device. You can also visit our official website, www.okidokimos.com for more information or to listen online. And finally, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. Until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.